text for the sermon this morning is the last part of verse 54, where the Lord says that they should be ashamed of all that you have done, becoming a consolation to them, a consolation to Sodom and Samaria. beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mahatma Gandhi, the man who led the independence movement in India, once studied the Bible when he lived in South Africa among reformed people. And he said to one of his Christian friends, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And so Gandhi decided to remain a Hindu because the Christians were so unlike their Christ. He used the unchristian behavior of some Christians that he knew to justify remaining a Hindu. Of course, you know, if you think about his reasoning, it's a wrong kind of reasoning. He judged the whole Christian faith by his experience with some individual Christians, like rejecting the, the whole Chinese race because you had some bad experiences with a, a few Chinese people. However, Gandhi's using the unchristian behavior of some to justify his remaining a non-Christian does, does tell us something, though. Say something to us. It tells us we need to be careful to be Christ-like in our dealings with and before others who are non-Christian so that we don't give them an excuse to continue in their unbelief and their unchristian behavior. See, it's not a bad thing when you have to bear insults from others because you want to love and serve your Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ says, then you're blessed if people speak against you because of him. But what if God's people live inconsistent with their beliefs, inconsistently with their beliefs? What if members of the church do things which are unscriptural, unchristian? Sit in church every Sunday, but act sinfully during the week in your dealings with others. You know what happens then? Well, we provide unbelievers with an excuse to continue in their way of life, in their walk. And that's what our text is about. And I preached to you the text with this theme, the Lord admonishes Jerusalem that she consoled or she comforted Sodom and Samaria with her sins. We'll pay attention to first the context of this admonition and secondly, the content the actual content of that admonition. So first, the, the context. Congregation, you might remember from last Sunday yet how the Lord, in the first part of Ezekiel 16, reminds the people of Jerusalem and Judah how they became God's covenant people in the first place. Not because they were better or more worthy or more upright than others, than anyone at all, 
not at all. Of themselves, they were unclean before him too. Despised, destined for death. And that's why he describes him as a, a foundling girl. Newborn baby girl, abhorred, abandoned in a field by her pagan parents, struggling in her own blood. That was Jerusalem in herself. But the Lord had mercy on her. He saw her and he cleansed her of her blood and filth and said to her, live, gave her life completely out of his grace, made them his own, promised them redemption. So far, the text of, the, of last Sunday. But the Lord went even further with her. He made a vow to marry her. He took that foundling and he made her rich, clothed her with costly garments, adorned her with precious jewelry, fed her with the best foods. She became beautiful and famous and she was his wife. She became his wife. So there the Lord pictures the blessings he bestowed on Judah and then specifically Jerusalem by his grace. The Lord took Jerusalem in the pitiful state she was as baby, gave her life, lavished her with all kinds of good things. So she became a richly attired, beautiful young woman. He made Jerusalem the place for his temple. And so Jerusalem became a beautiful and renowned city. And the point of that allegory so far is that Jerusalem became that great and beautiful city where God's name was established and only because he made it so in his grace. It was nothing but the pure, abundant, free grace of God that made all those good things happen for Jerusalem. They were his people, people of promise. And how good it would have been if the story had ended there. At verse 14 of this chapter. How wonderful if Jerusalem had sincerely appreciated God's grace and lived out of it. Responded with gratitude. Lived in hope of the fullness of God's grace which would appear in his promised Messiah. But the story does not end there, sadly. The Lord reports in a shocking way in verse 15 and following how Jerusalem only saw her newfound beauty and wealth and fame as an opportunity to engage in unfaithfulness and excess. She was not faithful to her husband who so loved and blessed her in the first place. No, she became insatiably adulterous. She gave her love first to this lover and then to another. Jerusalem made all kinds of treaties with other nations. Instead of calling on the Lord, she turned to other nations. The Lord calls that whoring. She prostituted herself to others. And not only that, what was even worse, she took the children she bore for the Lord and sacrificed them to idols. 
She bore them to, for him. They were his children. Covenant children. And you see what he's saying through Ezekiel. He uses that horror of marital adultery of prostitution by a wife as a metaphor of his covenant people constantly running to other nations for support and help. And the gods of those other nations trusting them, seeking their help from them rather than in the Lord, their covenant God. He had bound himself to, to Jerusalem with his promises, but she broke faith every time again and looked for help and happiness somewhere else. She served the gods of those other nations and sacrificed her children to them. That works through the generations, by the way, if you think about that. When covenant people don't trust and serve the Lord, the God of their salvation, consistently anymore, but serve themselves or money or the world, then the children are given up to other gods. They don't receive good covenantal guidance and example and instruction. They don't know how to trust and serve the Lord, their God anymore. And the result is that God's children become food for other gods. Their lives are determined by other things instead of the Lord, their God. And the Jews must have listened with horror as the Lord described the depth of Jerusalem's sins, covenant breaking and with those harsh words. It's a difficult chapter to read. Jerusalem had been lifted so high by grace, she fell so incredibly low. Those remaining Jews, she preferred others to her husband, the Lord who saved her and had been good to her. The Lord calls her a whore, a prostitute, a woman who sells herself to anybody on the street. In fact, he says she became so promiscuous, she paid others to have relationship with her. And the Lord just couldn't take it anymore. It's a picture of unfaithfulness, covenantal unfaithfulness. And to drive the point home even more, the Lord brings two sister cities of Jerusalem into the picture. Big sister Samaria, capital city of the 10 tribes, which long ago had been given over to destruction by the Lord because of sin. They, all those people had been taken away to Assyria. And little sister Sodom, city of sin, overturned by the Lord because of the sin of selfishness and same-sex relations centuries before in Abram's days. To the Jews in Ezekiel's time, those two names were synonymous with sin. Samaria and Sodom. That was like Las Vegas and Amsterdam with its sexual promiscuity for Christians today. Cities filled with lust and greed and temptation and immorality. Well, in the last part of Ezekiel 16, the Lord says to Jerusalem, you want to know how bad you've been to me? How much you've hurt me? Your covenant God with your unfaithfulness and your immorality in spite of what I've done for you? 
things have gotten so bad with you that compared to you, Sodom was nice and Samaria was virtuous. You made them look righteous by what you did. What a shock that must have been for those Jews of Jerusalem to hear. And the Lord speaks in such shocking terms because he wants them back. He wants to shock them to repentance. And this says a lot to us people of God today too, congregation. There's a serious call to faith and repentance in our text for us today too. You see, when God shows his abundant goodness and gives his gifts to his people, all those promises that he has given to, it's completely out of him, out of his grace. The only reason we belong to God's covenanted church is his undeserved favor. And we see that grace much more clearly today than, than the people of the Old Testament covenant, the Old Covenant did. Because we know Jesus Christ, God's son, who God gave completely over to hell and death in our place. How could we then ever seek our life and happiness and our help somewhere else other than in our faithful covenant God? A God who has shown himself so true and gracious in his son, Jesus Christ. Do we really see how awful it is if we seek our life and pleasure and happiness somewhere else instead of with the God who redeemed us from condemnation and death, eternal death in his only son? And then do we realize how, how painful it is to God if we today live carelessly or if we put our trust in our own abilities or in the economy or something besides him, if, if we work to get ahead but never ask him for strength or blessing or his salvation. If we use all the gifts he gives for our own benefit and glory rather than for the glory of his name and the progress of his kingdom? If we make our recreation more important than the worship of God on a Sunday? If we're too busy for ourselves to open the gospel at home? No time? Do you see how, how it has to pain God who gave us all for us? And you know, once we've been shown God's grace and love, once we become his bride, then there is no greater sin than to ignore him. If we presume on his grace, if we forget him and go our own way and act contrary to his word, or just even forget about his word, then we become more guilty in God's sight than the people who gamble and drink and commit immorality in Las Vegas, Sin City. We become more abhorrent before him than the prostitutes on the, sin, on the streets of Winnipeg and the people who live in sin in prosperous ease without thinking anything about God 
or of other people in need. The sins and carelessness of God's people are more serious in his sight than all the crimes of a whole city full of thieves and prostitutes and murderers and greedy people. Because he has shown his people so much mercy, given them so many good things, promised them eternal riches. How could they? You see, if we have people of, as people of God now ignore all that he has given us, if we ignore that, even maybe throw it aside by being careless in our walk of life, that upsets God more than all the gambling and sexual sins committed in Las Vegas, the crimes committed in Winnipeg. That's how the Lord Jesus puts it in Matthew 11. It'll be more bearable, he says there, for Sodom on the day of judgment than for Chorazin and Bethsaida, for people who have heard the gospel of Christ proclaimed, had the rich promises of the covenant bestowed on them, and who then still turned away from it. Great privilege and gracious and eternal blessings mean great responsibility, congregation. Remember that. Great gifts from God mean great responsibility. And let's pray that we always remember that and live out of that grace and goodness of our God today too. That the Spirit keeps our eyes, that we pray that the Spirit keeps our eyes open to how rich we are in Christ so that we don't trade those riches for the tin foil that the world has to offer. The world that lives without God. So that's the context of our text. The Lord warns Jerusalem, which was still standing at the time, that she had presumed on his grace, had been wickedly unfaithful to him, and that her sins in Sodom made Samaria look good. And then we come to the second part of the sermon, the content of the Lord's admonition. Not only congregation did the sinful activities of God's privileged people in Jerusalem make Sodom and Samaria look good by comparison. The Lord says in our text that what Jerusalem did with her sins was give consolation to Sodom and Samaria in their sins. In other words, the sins of God's people made Sodom and Samaria not feel bad about their sins made them feel, well, we're pretty good. It's okay with us. Jerusalem's unfaithfulness and immorality soothed Sodom and Samaria as I, they went about their sins. Think about it, congregation. The wicked and rebellious can revile the believers unjustly. That can happen. And then they do so because the Christ-like lives of believers are an admonition to them. If you truly live as a Christian, you are an admonition to unbelievers around you. It convicts 
the ungodly of their own sins. Godliness and consistency in Christ-likeness is in fact a call to repentance for unbelievers and rebellious. A church which keeps godly discipline is a call to repentance to the world. So we don't have to be surprised if we're, we would be despised for being godly. As the Lord Jesus once said, if they reviled him, they'll revile his followers too. And it's no shame for us to share in Christ's sufferings in that way. It's praised in scripture. There's reward in that, says the Lord. But when our actions are seen by others and used by them to comfort themselves in their unbelief and wickedness, then we ought to be ashamed of ourselves, as Jerusalem was supposed to be ashamed. It's true. Unbelieving and rebellious people look for sins among God's covenant people. We all live in glass houses, so to speak. And that shouldn't surprise us. The wicked and the unbelieving world look for our sins. Look for your sins and my sins so that they can put their consciences to rest. And when God's covenant people commit sins and the unbelieving and unrighteous see that or hear about it, they say, well, look at those Christians, reformed people. They go to church twice a Sunday. They have all kinds of Bible studies and so on. But it's just pious show because they do the same things we do. Sometimes even worse things. They're so unlike Christ, those Christians. He's not for us. And then they comfort themselves with that. Unbelievers and people who have rejected the gospel of salvation in Christ comfort themselves with our sins and shortcomings if they see that. And the more they hear about or see, the more they're comforted in their unbelief and hardness of heart. Think of the sin of covetousness on the part of God's people. We'll touch on that this afternoon. If we show covetousness in how we deal with others, we comfort the world by that. The unbeliever says, well, that person professes that his inheritance is with God. And that his mind is not set on earthly things, but on heavenly. But look at him. Covets the things of the world just as much as we do. He's no more generous than we are. In fact, he loves money as much as I do. Just as greedy as I am. And then you see the unbeliever comforts himself with that. He doesn't need God then. Look at God's people. They're no better than he is. No different. Their God is powerless to change them. Or think of the, uh, the sin of enmity, strife. They can make people so bitter sometimes. If there's strife or bitterness between brothers or sisters in the church, then the world finds out and comforts itself with that in its unbelief. 
and they could say to each other, you should hear about the fighting that goes on there among those people in that church. They're at each other's throats, claim to love each other, but they're worse than us. They pray to Jesus for forgiveness and everything, but they don't like to forgive each other. Oh, no. And I guess then that whole business of Jesus' forgiveness isn't really true. And then the world, the unbelieving world, comforts itself when there's hatred and anger in our homes. And when brothers and sisters in the Lord fight with each other, try to avenge themselves on each other, then we build up the world and its rejection of God and his deliverance in Christ and the renewal through his spirit. Or think, think of the sin of discontent among believers. We have a lot of privileges and blessings as God's people, like Jerusalem, which was chosen by God and blessed in so many ways with his grace. If we as Christians are full of unbelieving cares and are discontented with what we have received from God and we complain about everything just as much as those who don't believe in God, for instance, at the workplace or so, around the lunch table, then we comfort unbelievers in their unbelief. They say, those Christians always talk about trusting in God, but they're even more anxious than we are. And they have less joy than we do. Why should we even bother with God? Again, our, by our words and deeds, we confirm the unbeliever in his unbelief. Do you see how that works? What a terrible thing it is if we as God's people become careless in our walk and talk. How often may we have already soothed the conscience of the unbelieving or rebellious by our inconsistent actions or words. We can even comfort unbelievers by saying nothing against the sins they commit in our presence. Ever had that? Ever had that, that you had the opportunity to take a stand as a Christian and you thought, I should say something and you never did? You said nothing? Our indifference toward the wickedness we see done by others can make others think those others think well, we're no different than they and it makes them peaceful in their unbelief in fact we even strengthen them in their attitude the christian says nothing so why should i change brothers and sisters boys and girls our text is just a few words at the end of that verse in the Bible, but it can say a lot, right? And I don't think anybody here can say that they've never, ever given comfort to unbelieving or rebellious people in some context. This is something we have to think about and something we can repent from, something we need to work with. Just like the Jerusalem of old, we've been given those immense spiritual treasures and eternal blessings completely out of grace through Jesus Christ. We're greatly privileged as Church of Christ, as Bride of the Lord, redeemed by His blood. How blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, we sing. We're objects of God's covenant love 
He wants you and me. And we have to remember that every day so that we don't presume upon his grace and love and his gifts. And we become careless in our life like Jerusalem did. Because then we console the wicked. And congregation, how in the world could we do that in the presence of God? How could we who have been brought from darkness into God's marvelous light in Christ lend comfort to people in their unbelief? No, let us by our Christian walk of life be an admonition to all unbelief and wickedness. And so win our neighbors for Christ. And if we fall before our neighbor, then let's repent and honestly confess our sin before those others. That's then also a call to them to embrace Christ. There is forgiveness, sir. Congregation, pray constantly for God's grace to be able to live like Christ. To live a life which praises God and is a constant call to unbelievers around us to seek him too. Because with him and with him alone are blessings forevermore. Amen.